Today, uh, we're going to continue our verse-by-verse study of Romans. We're in Romans 11, starting in verse 1. And let me just give you like a little preview of some of the questions and things we're going to deal with. The, I mean, the question comes right out of verse 1. It says, has God then cast away his people? That's the question. And the people here are the people of Israel, the, the Jewish people. Has God cast them away? Are they rejected? Does God still have a pleasant future for Israel in some national sense? That's the question. Um, in light of anti-Semitism, this is really important. In light of the, the persecution of Jewish people throughout history, this is really important. In light of some of the nutty stuff you hear said, sometimes in the name of Jesus, uh, this is important to know what is God's plan eschatologically or, or in times or his future plan for Israel. What is, what's the dealio? Um, and also in light of trusting God's promises. Because if God could really cast off Israel, then how do I know he wouldn't just cast off me? You know, there's like an element there where his, his faithfulness to Israel is what encourages you in his faithfulness to your heart when you failed. Um, also, there's going to be a lesson that's really on my heart, a lesson about running with endurance, about living our life with a sense of endurance, with a sense of patience in the challenges that we face, which we do constantly and growing challenges. So what I'll do is I'm going to start it here in Romans 11. We won't finish it today, for sure. For sure. After studying, I'm like, yeah, there's no way. Uh, but we're going to do for the first, at least, verse. Um, probably even a little further than that. We'll probably do at least the first six verses of Romans 11, God willing. Um, but what I do encourage, though, is if you're feeling like you're getting lost in the verse-by-verseness of Romans going, but, but what about the whole book? Remember, actually, the first study I taught in Romans was an overview of all 16 chapters of the book. And so it was a one-study overview of the whole flow of the book. It might be good to refresh yourself on that if you're interested. It's online. It's just called uh, Romans Overview, I think is the title. But it should be the first one uh, in my series on Romans is the first video there. So I did that on purpose because I knew we could get lost in a particular passage and not see how it connects. So there it is. Um, So Romans 11, verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Um, My first question as I read this is, what is meant by cast away? I mean, his people here is talking about the Jews. There's no question about it. The Jewish people, Israel, are in question. But cast away. I think the context is, are they utterly lost? Is, is Is it over for the Jewish people? If you're a Jew and you have these promises that you think God's with you and you think God is going to, t- to take care of you, do wonderful things in your future, is that all over? Is God just done with the Jewish people? That, that's, that's where we've gone from Romans 9 through Romans 10. And we see how all these events have been prophesied. The Messiah would come. He'd be ultimately not received by a lot of, a lot of Israel. He would end up going to the Gentiles, his message to the Gentiles. They would receive. So then the natural next question is, so what's up with Israel? Then is it over for them? And um, it's, it's actually, his answer is implied in the question because it says, he doesn't say, has God cast away Israel? He says, has God cast away his people? Like the answer is implied in the question, isn't it? They're like his people. You think he's cast away his people that he chose and he called, that he brought out of Egypt, that he made all these promises? I mean, it was all up to God. He, Israel didn't choose God. He chose them. And so um, that's interesting. Um, So he answers it in verse 1. He says, certainly not. Now, some translations will actually say, God forbid. Have you, maybe you've read a translation that says that, God forbid. That is not what it says in the Greek at all. Um, Some pastors get pretty upset about that. They're like, 
like they feel that this is actually almost taking God's name in vain. You just insert God's name to make your statement more powerful, God forbid. But, um, but just to be clear, that's certainly not, that's what it says in the Greek. He, it's, it's like this really strong way in Greek of saying, no way. No, 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 no. Absolute denial of that. So it's a very emphatic, like strong denial. No way has God cast away his people. And then he gives an example of proof of this. He's like, let me give you a piece of evidence. For I am also an Israelite, Paul says, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. He wasn't even a convert, right? He's a Jew. He is a blood of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin, Israelite. This is who he is. And so he says, um, yeah, hello, <laughs> has God cast away his people? And to this, I think that there's a hello answer to anyone who thinks that God has utterly cast off Israel and he has no interest in them. I just want to say, do you love Paul, but hate Jews? Is that, because there are some people, I don't, I don't think any of them are represented in this room, right? But there are some people who are very anti-Semitic. They're, they're very against the, the Jewish people. And they try to use Jesus as a reason for this. And I'm like, are you aware that Jesus is a Jew? He's Yeshua, the Messiah. Are you aware of this? He's Jewish. Paul is Jewish. Are you aware that you're reading the books you're reading to try to establish your hate of the Jewish people were all written by Jews? <laughs> it's just the irony of it. So it's like, duh. But it's not only Paul, not only Jesus, but all of the first believers were Jewish. Almost all of them that believed in Jesus were Jewish. If you read the book of Acts and you pay attention to Jewish Gentile issues, which I highly recommend, then you start to notice something. In the book of Acts, about 3,000 people got saved in the first preaching of the gospel. Do you know who those people were? Jews. <laughs> That's who they were. It's, if God's cast off his people, how is it that the, that the first you know, huge reception of the, of the gospel message was amongst Jews? And it wasn't just that one time. It was for years in the early church Initially, the gospel went out, and it was almost entirely and only to Jewish people. And the only Gentiles who seemed to receive it were Gentiles who had been Jewish converts. So there were Gentiles who were underneath the, the law and all this. They had converted to Judaism. Cornelius, in fact, if you read the book of Acts chapter 10, you get to chapter 10, and there's still no significant Jew, uh, Gentile group of believers that aren't following Jewish customs and all this sort of thing. So this is why uh, when, uh, when we get to Acts chapter 10, we have this story of Peter and he's there at Simon the Tanner's house. He's up on the roof and, and God shows him a vision of this blanket being lowered out of heaven. And on it is all these different animals, including unclean animals. And God says to him, Peter, get up, kill and eat. Kill and eat. This is like the hunter's verse, right? Um, and he says, get up, kill and eat. And so Peter says, Lord, far be it from me. I've never eaten anything unclean. And there's like a pig there. I'm not going to I'm not going to do this. And so this happens three times, this conversation with God. And then Peter is, is, is pondering this vision and he gets visitors that come to the door and they're knocking. They're like, we've come for Peter. And it turns out that these visitors are coming from Cornelius. He is this Gentile guy who says, I want to hear the gospel. I want to know more about God. And God gave me a vision that I should call for Peter. The problem is he's a Gentile, right? And Peter just had this vision. He gets told by God, go in and visit this man, Cornelius. So he goes in and visits him. He ends up sharing the gospel with them. And just the Holy Spirit just falls upon them in a, in a powerful way. Like to demonstrate that these Gentiles can be saved. Now think about this in context of the book of Acts for a second. 
the apostles and the, and the Christians who were Jewish, right? They were messianic. They were wondering, can Gentiles really be saved without becoming Jews? Because that's how Jewish the early church was. It was so Jewish that they weren't sure what to even do with these Gentile people over here. The Jew first and then the Gentile. That's how it went out. So, so he's told uh, by God, you know, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And so he learns a lesson through it. But let me read to you what was, what was said in uh, Acts 10.45 about this whole scenario. Acts 10.45, it says, And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. So they're, they're Jewish. And as many as came with Peter, because, here's what blew them away, the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Hmm. <laughs> well, these Gentiles can't get saved? Like, this is... So, for those who are thinking, like, God has cast off his people and the Jews, it's all God from them. And you're like, okay, when did this happen exactly? Because if you're going to say that the Jew, the Jewish rejection of Messiah equals them being completely cast off, then how is it that the first 10 chapters of Acts, they're not even thinking about Gentiles for the most part because it's so Jewish? That's, that wouldn't make any sense. Um, this is literally years goes on. So Peter, his job, uh, his job title was Apostle to the Jews. That's what he's called. And Paul comes later. He's saved years later. He's sent later. He is the Apostle to the Gentiles. So then the gospel starts going out to the Gentiles, right? Jerusalem, uh, Ju- Samaria, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel goes out and continues to expand. If you read Acts as a as though you are following the, the spreading of the gospel, you'll see how it goes from Jewish to Gentile over a period of time. And how God had to like sort of train the early church about how open the gospel message was. Sometimes he has to train us about how, how open God's love and his message of grace is for everyone. Because we can sometimes get a little, you know, like we don't, <laughs> I don't need to worry about that person over there. God can save them, really? Are you sure? <laughs> So, God has not cast them away. Paul's case in Romans 11 is, I'm a Jew. Hello? <laughs> if, if, if they've cast them away, then why am I here? Um, verse 2, so he says, God has not cast his people away his people whom he foreknew. Um, this, is, this is the foreknowing of God. He knew all of their issues the moment he called them. Yet he promised them great things in the future. So, those things are not undone. Because God knew from the beginning all of the issues they would have. Um, this speaks greatly to God's love and mercy and long-suffering attitude towards people, towards, towards Israel, but towards me as well. And I'm really grateful for that. I just think of Jesus, how the disciples asked him, how, how often should I forgive people if they sin against me? And he says, you know, uh, Paul says like seven times. And he goes, uh, no, it's, it's like 490, exactly. And then you can, no, that's not... <laughs> Not the whole story. But, the, but he gives an illustration, though, when he says this. He goes, if, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day comes and asks for forgiveness, you should give it to him. In a day? Why would he say in a day? Here's the thing. At first you think, I have to forgive that much, and you get discouraged. And then you think, God forgives that much, and you get encouraged, right? This is God's incredible forgiveness towards me just blows my mind. And it then calls me to an incredible level of forgiveness and grace towards others. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. So God, he knew Israel when he first called him. He knew about their apostasy. He even predicted it in the prophets. Moses talks about how they're going to do it. Joshua, when he's like, 
as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. And they're like, we will too. And he's like, no, you won't. You can't even serve God. You're so wicked. And he kind of reams them, you know, in, in the book of Joshua. And so you've got the prophets talking about apostasy of Israel. And, how the, and yet, after the apostasy parts, read, read the prophets, then predictions about them being restored over and over and over again about them being backsliding, falling down, and yet being picked back up and brought back in. And this is greatly encouraging to my heart, uh, God's love for Israel um, and his love for us. So he's not cast away as people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, this is Elijah speaking, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? God now speaking, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, what I would like to do actually is turn to this passage in 1 Kings. So let's let's familiarize ourselves with it. 1 Kings 19. There's just some beautiful stuff in here um, for our hearts as well as our theology. We should never just be doing one or the other, right? Um, 1 Kings chapter 19. I believe that's Old Testament. And, and I'm going to read a, a chunk of this. Now, notice what, what it said there in uh, Romans 11, verse 3. It says, or verse 2, it says how Elijah was pleading with God against Israel. So it's, it's just describing what Elijah is doing. He's like saying, God, I want you to strike Israel. I want you to come against them, Lord. So he's asking God to attack or, or deal with those people. Why? Because they've rejected God and they've rejected him. And now they're trying to kill him. So let's, let's refresh ourselves on this. Um, 1 Kings verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 1 is where, we're, well, where we are going to start. But let me remind you, this is after the Mount Carmel incident. That is when Elijah comes and he has a showdown, like an old school showdown with the false prophets, like 450 prophets of Baal and one prophet of God, Elijah. And he comes and he says, let's see which God is the true God. If Baal is real, then let him prove himself. If God is real, he will prove himself. And so they do the showdown, right? They have the pit of fire. They're going to offer a sacrifice and they go, whichever God answers with fire, in other words, we won't light the fire, that, that God has to light the fire himself. That's the real God. So first the prophets of Baal go, right? They, they put the wood and they sacrifice and then they start chanting and doing their prayer stuff and they start doing their weird, weird ritual things that they do and they start cutting themselves and Elijah actually mocks them. And he's like, maybe your God's in the bathroom and he can't hear you. Like, I mean, he's like making fun of them. It's an interesting passage, right? Um, but now this isn't just childish mockery. This is important because he has to put on display for Israel the foolishness of this idolatry. It's, it's actually very important. Sometimes it's important to, to tear down false ideas, even though it might offend some people. Because for their sake, you need to break down this destructive idea. And so he, he does this. And, uh, and nothing happens. And they cut themselves. And they go for hours and hours. And then Elijah's turn comes. And he's so bold in his faith and trust in God's power. And the, the fact that God not only could answer, but will answer. That he says, add water. So they got the wood there and they add water. They have buckets of water so they just soak the whole thing. And he, and he just prays. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't chant. He doesn't have to have 30 worship songs first. Like he just prays. And God answers with lightning from heaven. Boom! Just blows the thing up. Burns up everything that's in there. And then Elijah's like, kill the false prophets. 
God has proven himself. Now, this is Israel, okay? This isn't going into some crusade in some foreign land. No, this is Israel. This is the people of God who said, we will follow God. And here's the deal. These false prophets who've been lying to you, deceiving you, causing you eternal harm, now they must die. So they slay these prophets. And now, in my mind, now we're going to read 1 Kings 19. We're going to do this from the perspective of, what is it like for Elijah to go through this? Like, have you read this thinking, how did it feel for Elijah? He's up on Mount Carmel. He has his mountaintop experience. And in a sense, it is. The false prophets revealed for who they are. God's glory shown to Israel. And I think Elijah's thinking this. Now they will follow God. Now, I could be wrong here. I'm just guessing at, at, his, at his, his attitude. This is what I would be thinking, though. I'd be like, man, God, you showed yourself to all the people. You proved yourself in front of those false prophets. Like, amen. Now they will follow you, God. Now Israel will revive. Israel will turn their hearts back to you, God. Yes. And so, you know, they, they slay the false prophets, and then he comes, leaves the mountain, and then here's what happens next. First uh, Kings 19. And Ahab, that was the king of Israel. This is the northern kingdom, Israel. The, they, never, they didn't have a single good king, by the way, so unfortunately. Um, and Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, who's the one who inspired all this false worship of Baal. So Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, we repent and we will turn to God. No. The messenger says, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. He gets a death threat from the queen of Israel, whom Ahab is bowing down to ultimately. She's really running Israel, not her husband at this point. And so he, so he hears the response, the royal response to all of this is, we're going to kill you. Not a revival, threats. Redoubling of the hatred against the truth of God. So what does he do? Verse 3, and when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life. It is never wrong to run for your life. Um, he ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Ju okay, so they have Israel this is the northern kingdom at this point. They're split. So Israel, that's where Ahab and Jezebel have their power and authority. And she's like, I'm going to kill you. So he goes down to Judah to try to get probably away from her and her power. So he's just running for his life. Here he was thinking Israel is going to be restored. Israel's brought back to God. And instead, they're just solidified ultimately in the, in the apostasy. And it's just, it's just tragedy. Um, <clears throat> verse 4, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. there, And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Like, I've had enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. I want you to know something. He did not take his life. He may have had those ideas, but he didn't think he had a right to take his life, apparently. But he did pray, Lord, I just wish you would take me. Just, just kill me already. I just want to be done with life. He goes from this mountaintop experience, God's glory revealed, all this powerful stuff, but because of the response of people, because of maybe disappointment, maybe just the struggles of ministry, I mean, talk about a hard ministry. He just, he just wants to be dead. I just, want to, I just want to be gone. I'm tired of these battles. Lord, it's enough. Just take my life. Again, doesn't talk about taking his own life, but he just wishes God would do that. I think he's experiencing massive discouragement. Massive, massive discouragement, to say the least. Um, he says he's no better than his fathers. I think he might be referring to the prophets who went before him, who prophesied to Israel and tried to get Israel to turn to God, and they failed too. And he thought when he started his ministry, I, you know, I know what I'm doing. 
oh, there'll be revival once, once I'm doing this thing. Once I travel around, I tell people in the message I've got, like, they're going to, oh, man, Israel's going to come back to God. Nope. No, I, I remember praying, especially at a younger age, Lord, please don't let me have a Jeremiah ministry. Because I, don't wanna, I just didn't want a ministry where you preach and nobody ever responds. Um, and now, now instead it's like, Lord, I, if that's what you want me to have, just let me have the ability to bear it because that's not going to be fun. <laughs> but your glory, whatever you want, you know, let it be done. But, uh, but, but the stress of that is, is tough. And, and I think we all know this. And when there's people you know and love and you care about and you want to minister to them and, and it doesn't work out, it's great anguish in your heart. So as we read, as we read on, it says, um, um, verse 5, And then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Um, the idea is he's just sleeping. He's depressed, I think. He's just, I'm sleeping. I just sleep all day. I don't want to do anything. don't want to get up. don't want to move. Don't want to. And some angel comes along and says, here's some food and water. Eat and drink. He eats and goes back to sleep. <laughs> um, it seems like it seems like a type of depression going on there. And Verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. What you have coming up, you're, you're not ready for it. It's too great for you. And that might be a key to the passage is this idea of it's too great for you. You are not up to the task anymore at this point. You, you want to die. You, you want these bad things to happen for yourself. And then that attitude will turn to Israel in a second. So he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, God says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? The Lord asks questions. It's not just to find the answers. It's to get us to find the answers, you know. What are you doing here, Elijah? So he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone, that's important there, alone am left, and they seek to take my life. God, look at me. I love you. I've been serving you. I've been faithful to you. Them, they've rebelled against you. They've rebelled against your prophets, and now they want to kill me, and I'm here alone. I'm alone. I'm like the only one left on earth that loves God. That's how he felt. I'm the only faithful person around. Everybody else is just backslidden. They're all fake Christians. <laughs> you know, It's just me. It's just me. That's how he felt. Verse... <clears throat> um, Verse 11, it says, Then he said, Go out, God speaking, uh, stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. The Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. So it was, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? It's the same thing he said before. What are you doing here? I, I can't help but just think he's shaking him up, right? He's like, what are you doing here? Oh, Lord, Elijah. And then like, wind, earthquake, fire. And then God's like, what are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> like he just gets his attention, you know, in a really serious way. Uh, it's like shaking somebody up in a sense. 
And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He's got the same five things he says. Then the Lord said to him, go, return. And look at, look at what happens to Elijah now. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. And you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. In your place. He says, it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu will kill. And whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Um, I think that he's, I think here's what's happening. I think with Elijah, because what happens next is he gets taken up. And we look at that as a glorious thing, because it is a glorious thing. But what occasioned it is a sad thing. Elijah's overwhelmed with his responsibilities. He's overwhelmed with discouragement and he just wants to give up and quit. He can't see what's really happening and he thinks things are actually darker than they are. So he says to God, I went out. I just went out. I'm angry. I'm upset. I'm, you know what? Just I wish you would just deal with them. And God says, anoint your replacement. You're done. At least for now. Anoint your replacement. I mean, Elisha is Elijah's replacement. And he goes, do these last tasks and your ministry's over. I take that as like, whoa. Whoa. And then God tells him the truth of the situation that he just can't see. Verse 18, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, there are 7,000 people like you who love me in Israel. In the, in the apostate northern kingdom where you've been all over the place for years preaching and ministering and you think, they're, you think they're not there but I'm telling you they're there. This is pretty intense, this stuff. You can go back to Romans 11 um, and he goes and he fulfills his task and then he gets taken up and, and glory to God for this but, but man, it's just so real. I think that um, Elijah comes, he pleads, according to Romans 11, he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, like, take them out, basically. And the divine response, verse 4, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Guess what? You want me to say off with their heads? And God could. He could have said off with their heads at any point. I mean, how many times could God have had a reason to destroy Israel, or me for that matter, or you, in your life? He just looks down and goes, oh, yeah, you're done. (laughs) I mean, how many times? But that's not his heart towards us. It's not his heart towards Israel. God didn't. Instead, what does he do? He mentions a remnant whom he has preserved because God is working even in the midst of their greatest apostasy in the history of Israel. God is at work still with people who are faithful to him. In the darkest times, there's still lights shining. I think that... um, Jeremiah went through some similar stuff. I mentioned Jeremiah a minute ago, but... But if you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 12 and let's look at what God said to Jeremiah when he had a similar situation. And hopefully it'll speak to our hearts today because I think we need to hear this. And if you don't need to hear it now, you'll need to write it down and remember it for later. (laughs) Because it seems like it's just a matter of time till you face your own intense discouragement in life. It seems like it's just a matter of time. Um, Jeremiah 12 Starting in verse 1, he says, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, let me talk with you about your judgments. 
he says, God, you're, in fact, one translation says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. <laughs> it's really interesting because he says, okay, I'm going it, to, it's careful. He's going, I'm going to complain to you, God, but I'm just acknowledging you're righteous. Like you're right. I know I'm wrong, but let me tell you how it feels. <laughs> like that's, so it's really very human. You know, it's just a very human moment. God, you are righteous. I'm not at all impugning your goodness but please let me deal with this. Let me process this issue I'm going through. And so he just puts it out there. Let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. They are near in your, in, uh, you are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. They're false believers and they're, they say the name of God, but their, their lives are wicked. And you allow this. It's like you've been, it's almost like you've been blessing them. What's up? Verse three, but you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me and you have tested my heart toward you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. Like there'll be no real judgment for our, for our sins. It's never going to happen. Then in verse 5, here's God's response, and it blows me away. It's not what you'd expect. He doesn't even explain to Jeremiah everything that's going on. He just says this. If you have run with the footmen and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? Jeremiah, you think this is hard? Wait till you see what comes next. What? You think this is tough? You think this, the struggles and the battles are going through now are hard? I'm telling you, there's greater trials coming your way. And you need to learn to deal with trials. That's intense. Jeremiah, you've been running, with, you've been running a foot race with other footmen. Later, you'll be running against horses. And if you can't handle this now, how will you handle the next trial? How will you deal with the next thing that is coming your way, Jeremiah? I'm calling you to a glorious purpose, but the glorious purpose is you reaching out to wicked people with God's truth and love. It's not going to be that easy. Wow. He continues and he says, If in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? And, and, and it's very picturesque language, but he's saying, he's saying, you thought this was going to be easy going and you can't handle it. But I'm telling you, this is the easier place. <laughs> and what's coming next will be harder. And so Jeremiah, though, he does actually continue. Uh, his story is a tough story. His ministry is a tough ministry. and His life is a hard life until he goes to be with the Lord. But he lives for a greater kingdom and eternal glory. Um, so more than worth it. But we learn something through Elijah, through Jeremiah. And I think we learn this, is that you guys will face intense discouragement in life. It's going to happen at some point or another. And sometimes rather than, you know, answering our complaints, God is kind of saying, you need to trust me. You need to buck up spiritually and put your faith and trust in me because this is what you're here for. This is, this is what you're here for. Sometimes we have people in our lives we look at and we think, that person can handle this. That person can handle anything. And, and God looks at you and he says, with my strength in you, you're that person. With my power in you, with my help for you, you're that person. I'm not saying it's easy, <laughs> but I'm saying it's biblical. And, um, and there's something very powerfully true about this stuff. Were you expecting a prosperity message tonight? <laughs> well, prosperity's coming. It's just not yet. That's all. Um, God has preserved 
people and there's times where we look around in our lives like Elijah and we look around and we think, no, everyone hates you, God. Everyone's rejected you. The world's getting so dark. And we need to remember this. As dark as you think the world is now, you don't know what God is doing in different places. You don't know about the goodness that's happening. Like what if God just for a second arranged a meeting between you and everyone that got saved in the last 24 hours? Just around the world, everybody who gave their life to Jesus in the last 24 hours, and you got to sit down with them and just see, and God goes, look what I did in the last 24 hours that you didn't even know about. But you were freaking out because you watched the news. We just don't know what God's doing. And if he preserved in Israel's greatest apostasy, these 7,000 who had not bowed the knee, is God not working today? I don't want to be foolishly optimistic or foolishly pessimistic as a believer. If God was no longer doing anything in this world, the world would be over. God is at work. God is doing glorious things. And we sometimes don't see it and it discourages us. It discourages us. Things aren't as extreme as we think they are when we look at the negative sides of this world. And every generation thinks, things are just worse than they ever were before. And it's like, everybody says that every 10 years. It's just, maybe we're just be always becoming more aware of things as we get, as we get older and, and, and more alert to issues. But... Um, things aren't necessarily worse than they were before. I'm, I'm thinking that in, the, in the, the days before the flood, things were probably even worse than they are today. Just thinking, you know, <laughs> that that's the case. Um, so don't quit. Don't think it's over. Stay hopeful. Stay hopeful. Don't be discouraged. If you are discouraged, take your complaint to the Lord and, and, and let, let his word guide and direct you in this. Remember this. I want to learn the lesson from Elijah. And here's the lesson, and this is what I honestly think. I don't want to be disqualified from what God might do through my life because I get too easily discouraged. Because I think things are darker than they are and because I let things burden me in the wrong way. I want to continue to get to serve Jesus more. And so this means being able to say, you know what? I need to not believe my own news reports that I play in my head of the reality I see around me. And I need to trust that God is working. Um, yeah. I also think there's another lesson in there. Um, if 7,000 had not bowed the knee, which was a good number of people, especially the population size back then, um, but, but a large number had bowed the knee, what we need to learn, and we learn this from a lot of the, the fact that the minority of Jews had accepted Christ, the majority had not, is we cannot be testing the wind in life like, oh, oh, the wind is blowing. The church is now accepting homosexuality. Okay, I'm down. Because I don't want to be looked at as a bigot or I don't want to be seen as rude or cruel or whatever. Or, oh, um, the wind is blowing again. Hell has become unpopular. So we're, we're no longer going to teach on that issue. <laughs> you know? Or judgment or wrath or Jesus being the only way or any of these other many solidly biblical truths that when the wind blows, I want to be found as one of the few that has not bowed the knee to those things. Um, and that's, that's a good encouragement for us is be willing to go against the flow. All right, let's continue to get a little bit further tonight. Um, verse 5, <clears throat> it says, Even so, even so, and now Paul takes the illustration from Elijah and he applies it to his day. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Not because they deserve it, but because of God's called by grace and love and mercy. There were a remnant of Jewish believers in Jesus, in Yeshua, at the time of Paul. There's two messages here. To the Jew, I would say, um, be mindful of the fact that the Hebrew Bible speaks of this remnant of, of faithful Israel. 
So they shouldn't be going, well, a lot of Jews don't accept Jesus, so I won't either. But rather they should go, well, a lot of Jews didn't accept Jeremiah or Elijah or Isaiah or Ezekiel or, you know, any of these guys. So let me look at Jesus as, as, as the possible Messiah. Um, the faithful among Israel have been the remnant before. But to the Gentile, the message is this, is don't discount the Jewish people. There was an, a remnant in Paul's time. There was still a remnant and there's still a remnant today, although it's bigger than it was in Paul's time. As of a few years ago, the estimates that I, that I read like five or six years ago were that there were about 350,000 Messianic Jews, Jews who believed in Jesus. 350,000. Now, these numbers are tough to come by because a lot of Jews who do believe in Jesus, they realize they'll be ostracized sometimes from family members. And so then there's a lot of kind of nervousness about how open to be and all that sort of thing. There's been some who have been treated as though they're not Jews. Like you could be Buddhist and you're a Jew, you're still a Jew. You could be Hindu and you're a Jew, you're still a Jew. You become Christian and you're a Jew, you're not a Jew anymore. That it's, it's, it's kind of a persecution thing towards the Jewish believers. Well, um, nowadays there are more Jews following Jesus than in Paul's time. So anyone that says Israel is cast off and God's completely done with them, I think it's unbiblical to say that. And, um, and it speaks to God's love and mercy and faithfulness towards us that he's still working his glorious work in Israel. Though I don't think this means we endorse everything national Israel does. And we shouldn't. Um, we should be more thoughtful than that. Verse 6, it says, And if by grace, if this calling, if this choosing of God is by his grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. This is the last scripture we'll do tonight. But we've got to focus on it because this verse is so neglected. And I love verse six. Okay, I know it's like a dictionary verse. It's like it's like it really is like a section of the dictionary. Here's what grace means. Here's what works means. Here's what it doesn't mean, and here's what the other one doesn't mean. So it it's defining terms. It's beautiful, and it's super important, and it's totally neglected. And I would beg every Jehovah's Witness, every Mormon, every Catholic, and anybody else who believes in grace plus works to study verse six of Romans eleven because it completely destroys those theologies. They're not possible. Let me explain. It says here that grace is no longer of works, and works is no longer of grace. Because if you're going to pretend that if it is of works, it's not of grace. If you're going to pretend that it's of grace, then it's not of works. That it, these are, this is what, what's called a dichotomy, a separation of two options. There's only two choices here. You are of, saved by grace or you are saved by works. What everyone tries to do, what all false gospels try to do is they try to combine the two into some mixture. So that when we encounter Jehovah's Witness and you say, well, I believe we're saved by grace. And they go, we agree. And you go, wait a minute. I don't think, and you talk to the Mormon. I believe we're saved by grace. And they go, absolutely, we agree. And you go, but wait a minute. That's not quick. And you talk to the Catholic. I believe we're totally saved by grace. And you go, but wait. Like you can't, you can't say that because if you say grace, you mean not works. And they go, well, I'm not saying not works. I'm saying grace, you know, and works. But the Bible here is saying you can't not say that. That's not allowed. That's against the rules. Okay. You can't add, <clears throat> you can't add grace plus works. You can't have Taco Bell and Mexican food. Okay. <laughs> it's one or the other. <laughs> It's not both. So one is one is not the other. Um, 
So here's, here's, here's a way to summarize this as you're, as you're sharing with people and you get into that confusing moment where you're like, wait a minute, you can't say that. Is you can show them Romans eleven six and then say, but if it's by grace, then it's no longer of works. And if it's by works, it's no longer of grace. These things don't compute. You can't combine them. So I, I hear it put this way is everyone believes in the necessity of grace. All false gospels will teach that you need some version of grace. That grace is needed. It's necessary. But they don't believe in the sufficiency of grace. Or in other words, they don't believe grace is enough. Just grace, not enough. You got to do stuff too. And then I would say, well, if you have just grace and doing stuff, that's not grace. Because they view grace, get this, as a discount on salvation. Not free salvation. Grace is viewed like it's a coupon. Like, oh, Jesus, I'm going to bring all my works. Like, I got, oh, I got all my change, but then I got the coupon, so I have enough to buy salvation. That's ultimately what we're saying. But grace is simply free. It's utterly free gift of God. I do not offer anything. So grace equals not works. Works equals not grace. It's a true dichotomy. You've got to pick one or the other. The Bible is defining its terms here, and you can't argue with this and be biblical. It's like the Bible's going, just so you know, future false gospels, let me define what I mean when I say grace. Saved by grace, it means not works. That's good stuff. Good stuff. Grace is not a discount on salvation. It means salvation is utterly free. So how does that relate to, why is Paul pointing this out? Uh, how does it relate to what he was saying about, about the, the Jewish people? And he's like, God has, has elected, chosen to do a work in the Jewish people. And he's chosen to do this work by grace. And so just as your salvation is secure in grace, so God's future promises to Israel are secured by grace. There are promises God made to Israel that are not conditional, right? Where he just says to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do, period. I'm just going to do it by grace. There are other ones that are conditional, and we see those things experience the flip-flop of Israel and judgment on this and that. But yet those unconditional promises and the prophetic statements about their future are secure. So we'll talk more about that uh, next week. And what I want to do next week is we'll do, continue in Romans 11, but we'll look at actually some of those promises to Israel in some of the prophets so we can kind of try to build an image of what God's future plan for Israel is as a nation um, because we believe that they're, God is not done with them. Uh, God is not done with them. And I think that that's encouraging because when I see God's love and patience with Israel, I know he has the same patience towards us. And I need it. <laughs> Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we are grateful for your love and grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful to, uh, to the people of Israel, to, to the Jewish people, that you, you, you're, um, you're calling of them as a people. Um, even though it might be working through a remnant at the time, it is still intact and there is a future hope for them and that we delight in that, God. We delight in that. We, we pray as we continue through Romans 11, you give us wisdom to understand the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles, between being grafted in and the natural branches and all that and the root. Give us wisdom. Uh, let, us, let us just get it and understand it better. But, but tonight, as we close our prayer is this, Lord, help us to have endurance. Help us to have endurance. That we would not see things as darker than they are. That we wouldn't process things through our limited vision, but we would have a hopeful attitude in that we don't see everything. We know that you say you are working all things together for good. Lord, let us know that that's true. We pray for encouragement for each of us, Lord. 
We ask, Lord, that you'd encourage um, everyone here, everyone listening who's hearing this message, who's been facing some discouragement, because that's the real battle. That, that's, it's worse than what's going on is, is how it impacts us. So God, uh, see our weakness, meet us where we're at, be our refuge, and give us more hope so we can continue serving you, so we don't get disqualified from those future opportunities to glorify Christ in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.